Hello, and welcome to In Mahaba's second podcast for October on Fear. I'm Lydia Youssef. And I'm Irini Youssef. And we're going to be, uh, as sisters today, taking a little bit of a different route with our podcast and taking more of a discussion route <laughs> uh, on fear. So because Irini is a smarter sister, I'm going to launch the first question at her. And what do you think is uh, the root of fear? We hear a lot of times that the root of fear is uh, trauma-based. So fear is reactive um, as kind of an instinctual thing based on that trauma. What do you think? Mm. So I think the trauma answer is really interesting, but I personally think fear stems from either a realization of how weak you are or a perception that you're really weak and you're trying to overcompensate that anxiety by coming at people with violence, you know, and that manifests itself as fear. So in a really good example, of course, is Hitler and other white nationalists using white fear and white anxiety to commit violence against minorities. So... And it was really clear with their propaganda and with their campaigns that this was, all the violence that they committed was indeed stemming from fear and that that fear was stemming from a perception that, you know, Germany, the motherland, was on her deathbed, that, you know, the white race was on its deathbed. So this perception of yourself as being very weak or being, um, you know, in a state of crisis and that you need to react to that crisis with something like violence, um, with fear. So, and I think what you said in your question about trauma was really interesting because, um, you know, I, so I think like a few years ago, I would have immediately said, no, it's not trauma based at all. And so like, there are a lot of, um, people who commit really heinous acts stemming from fear who have not experienced any kind of trauma. Um, but then from another side of it that I kind of see now, uh, we can say perhaps that the human condition itself is a kind of trauma. And so, okay, this is That's too very hard. deep. <laughs> okay, I'm going, I haven't really developed that thought, but I just, I just find it interesting, you know, how, um, you know, so we all become aware that we all have, you know, a need for food, a need for shelter. And I think that awareness of just how, um, you know, enslaved you are to your own body and its needs can create like a kind of, you know, inherent anxiety that comes with just being a human. And then whatever emotions stem from that, such as fear, then makes sense. Um, but that's that's a completely different topic. And so I believe, you know, um, back to like the media when they talk about like all of this um, fear and all of this violence that happens because the shooter was traumatized or because the assailant was traumatized. Um, so that's not what they're talking about, right? They're not talking about the human condition. They're usually talking about, uh, oh, the student was bullied or the student was excluded. And um, that's a completely different thing. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. Like going uh, off too much on this thought. Nah, it's good terrain. <laughs> uh, I thought it was interesting that you put like fear and weakness together because I think you can even put trauma and strength together, even though that strength can manifest in different ways that we may like label as weakness. But um, yeah, I think the discussion 
really with fear needs to move away from that idea of always being traumatized or outcast because um, it can I don't know I think we try to make fear as a very deep thing but sometimes it's not <laughs> too much so you mentioned white fear and Nazis uh, so how would you define white fear um, as separate do you think like white fear needs its own category separate from fear because a lot of people may just say there's no need to make a definition of it. Mm. So I think it does need a separate definition. Oh, and how I would define it. So we said that fear stems from an anxiety produced by the realization of how weak you are. So I think with white fear, how I would define it is a racial anxiety developed from the perception um, or realization of how, um, you know, weak or yeah so it's interesting that it goes with the white notion of the superiority complex and then you get like this fear that comes out of it so this idea that because I spoke last week about how white fear manifested through colonization so it's interesting to see that even with the superiority complex of well, it's kind of well the superiority complex. There's still this uh, rhetoric of fear, um, and I guess it makes sense because even if you take it down to like the very smallest level, so not like colonies and such, but like even in like the schoolyard, the bully who always has this kind of superiority complex has all these anxieties as well, and not only is a terrorizing figure, but also tries to monopolize that type of fear for himself only so and like say that anyways so yeah I don't know if you want to say anything more about that yeah um and I wanted to say like I do think it deserves its own definition Um, oh yeah so since it has moved so many events in history and so and it's not just um you know a fear like we said earlier regarding like the human condition like there's something really particular about it um and that's why it needs its own definition white fear uh getting a little bit more specific about it um has there ever been a moment where you feel like white fear has impacted you personally in your life i think um so i've heard a lot of you know, men of color say this, and I've noticed it with myself, but uh, how I talk to white people is not Mm -hmm. uh, my usual voice. So like when I'm talking with white people, you know, I actually had a white person say to me, that's like uh, your telemarketer voice. So everybody has that. But I actually think that people of color have it in a different way. Like Mm -hmm. it's not just you picking up the phone and trying to sound quote unquote proper. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, no, I I agree because um, I do have the telemarketer voice, I guess, with um, people outside my home who are, you know, other people of color, like people at church, um, etc. So but then there's a very specific voice then that I use for white people. And it's like a way to um, ease whatever anxiety they might have about me. And so uh, and I've noticed, too, that uh, white people like <laughs> does a really good way to ease their anxiety is to entertain them so if you're really funny Mm. yeah then they'll love you but you know if you're not funny then like 
you know, watch out. <laughs> so um, just, uh, yeah, like, so something that I've had, so I've just had to change, like, my voice, my intonation, humor um, around white people just to make them more comfortable. Um, and it was just from, like, little signals I would get when I wouldn't do that. So just being completely, like, ignored or ostracized mm. or, um, you know, or even... Um, so, you know, there are days where I just, um, I'm more introverted. So there are days where I just like don't speak as much or don't crack as many jokes or whatever it is. Um, and so I've just noticed like on those days, um, there's always like a huge rush from everyone to figure out like what's wrong with me. And so, and to figure out like if everything's okay and how it's done is almost like, um, these like attempts I see to like diffuse a bomb almost <laughs> like just making sure I'm okay and like nothing is upsetting me and so um and it really grates on my nerves sometimes because I notice um there's nothing like dangerous about being quiet there's nothing you know um unusual with it even so like I would notice like other white coworkers or other white students like also keeping to themselves for the day or also you know not talking as much that day and they're not given that same kind of treatment that same insistence that something larger is wrong and like you know they have special knowledge on how to fix it I just need to tell them what it is um yeah so I think back to your question <laughs> so white fear has impacted me and just how I interact with white people like in professional settings or school settings um so and always keeping in mind that I have to be a little bit you know softer and a little bit more entertaining around them or else I'm going to really spike their anxiety yeah, I remember one time I was in this writing thing at Vandy. I took a course. It was a mistake. <laughs> um, and there was another Coptic guy, We were, which is very rare at Vandy at that point. But he was Coptic Protestant, and he was writing this story about um, like having to be the entertainer. And it just really struck me because somehow <laughs> I was like, oh, dang, this is the life of a lot of people of color. And... Uh, uh, there was another course that I took at Vandy <laughs> that was like um, introduction to Judaism and she just started we had like a cultural section and she was just like why do you think a lot of minorities in this country um, turn out to be comedians or why are a lot of comedians Aww. in this country minorities and I was like wow <laughs> welcome to white supremacy 101 <laughs> yeah. um, and I think it also goes back to that idea of um, minstrel shows as well like why black people because i found out that even in minstrel shows black people would put on blackface so oh, they would make themselves darker I didn't know this. because it would be more entertaining so there, that's a whole other thing about like people of color constantly having to entertain even like it becomes so subconscious that you don't even realize it until like you're in a writing class with someone and he's like oh yeah i had to entertain these people so i could be relevant because they didn't know if i was white or black so I had to find some spot, so I decided the comedian. So, yeah, and it wasn't, and that's really sad, because I only kind of came to that realization that I'm always the funny one, like, in, like, college. <laughs> so it was really kind of this sub a subconscious thing of um, living in the U.S., of being, you know, I have to find my place, how do I find it in some type of cultural aspect. So, uh, yeah comedy as culture for us is an interesting thing and I think another dimension as being Egyptian but anyways that's really off topic <laughs> so coming back there was something else that you said that I wanted to comment on you said something oh, was it a, on how 
like on days where I didn't speak as much or make as many jokes, they would, you know, oh, come at me with so many questions. Yeah, I also feel, yeah, very... I don't know. I haven't had that because I can um, be very extroverted in front of people personally. So I can keep up that energy. So you're a little bit different in that sense. But it's very interesting that you've noticed that white savior complex coming in. Um, And I think that's a very like white friend type of thing. Like I've seen a lot of uh, white people try to be like, oh, I'll save you from your strict parents or I'll save you from like your Mm -hmm. strict church or your strict community. Um, So our culture is seen as something, oh, like that you're afraid of your community. Let me save you. The fear is yours and not the fear that I'm creating that you won't be accepted into white community. So it can even be like thrown back at you Mm -hmm. as like you're actually the one who's afraid and not white people who are afraid of the cultural difference so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i do feel there have been a lot of white people in my life who've tried to make me like a charity case for themselves to feel good about themselves um Mm -hmm. so like a lot of these questions i do feel are unnecessary but because they keep insisting something must be wrong and i'm just not aware of it um and i have to tell them specifically because they can solve it like you know, that really shows you how they see themselves um, and how they see themselves in relation to me, that they, despite being someone I only see for like, let's say a few hours every week, they somehow have special knowledge on how to resolve whatever crisis I'm having that's making me not funny for this day. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the white savior complex. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that white liberals can also like participate in manufacturing fear for a lot of uh, people of color in this country it's not just conservatives because a lot of people like to point out like donald trump and the wall george bush and the war but there are a lot of like microaggressions that can also happen so like a lot of nonprofits in nashville really monopolize the fact um like all of this conservative um Mm. propaganda rhetoric and also actions have been happening and so they're like oh immigrants shouldn't be afraid to be here and while that's like no one's denying that (laughs) uh but it's also this idea that they're not going towards the root of the problem um but these white saviors in these nonprofits are just monopolizing that fear to get donations or to make protesting (laughs) you know and not really understand what does it mean to be afraid when you're an immigrant um and maybe a protest and maybe some donations are not going to fix that um so yeah. yeah I think what's really telling about white liberals is how instead of starting a nonprofit or participating in nonprofit, something that would be so much more beneficial is just talking with their own family members. So mm. I get really annoyed when they complain about um, going home for Thanksgiving and having to talk to like racist uncles. Like that's an opportunity for you. So instead of, you know, doing whatever you're doing in these nonprofits, like if every white liberal could convert like two people in their own household like we wouldn't even have an issue to begin with but instead of talking to their own family members they want to come into our communities and talk to us Mm. about how they know things and have special knowledge about it and great don't be (laughs) afraid yeah (laughs) yeah so actually that's interesting how you framed that too so because i think what's stopping them then from like talking to their family members is fear of like 
Yeah. <laughs> I feel like fear is a big white thing. <laughs> like, they're just afraid of each other. They're afraid of us. They also want to handle our fear. They just... This yeah. goes a lot. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, how they're afraid of their own family members, which is how they go home to these, like, conservative family members, but then work 40 hours a week in a nonprofit. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, like, the level of fear. Like, I always feel... I don't know what the word for it is, but, like, when your fear is just an uncle yelling at you versus someone getting deported, you obviously have not estimated someone's life and death situation based on, you know, how four or five of your members, family members vote, Mm. you know? And it's almost, like, particularly on that issue, because Thanksgiving comes along and people are, like, you know, it's such a nuance to go home, and it's just nuance, right? Like, it's such a problem. Um, nuisance. Nuisance! I do I say it wrong? It's such a nuisance to go. It's not a nuance. <laughs> well, well, it's also a nuance, considering <laughs> that you're afraid of the people you're trying not to be. Anyways, yeah. Uh, nuisance to go home. Yeah. So, yeah, it's such a nuisance to fight for people, and it's such a nuisance to speak out. But if we put you in a crowd of protesters, that's okay. So, mm. not to, like, hate on protesters right now, but... <laughs> full mode yeah yeah no what i mean is so okay i know how i've been talking it seems like i have an issue with white people and nonprofits, but my issue is just when they do that without the foundation of having spoken to people in their own families you know so, right yeah so my issue is just yeah white people being in protest being in the movement without having any foundation so without having talk to their own family members talk to their own white people in their own white communities but i also think there's a problem with being in a non-profit that helps people of color and you're like leading it or you're a staff member oh for sure yeah so i think that's a larger discussion of white people constantly trying to quote-unquote help um when there are much more foundational ways that you can do that but yeah I know that gets spicy and dicey. (laughs) Yeah, because we can't talk to your family members or we can't join your family at Thanksgiving and have an emotional connection with them and talk to them about politics. But you can. That's like the one thing you can do. And y'all aren't doing it. (laughs) So we do have these issues then. Yeah. Um, So do you think fear, um, like a lot of times we hear that fear is really men have it worse. So particularly with like, I think what was interesting in the evolution of the Black Lives Matter movement was that it was um, very male-centric for a while, like black men Mm. being shot by the cops, which is very important. Um, And then it kind of evolved when the Sandra Bland uh, report came out. Mm. Um, She was in Texas, right? I think. I'm not sure. Oh, well, being pulled over for a... um, for a taillight, I believe, and then um, there was, like, some setup of a suicide. Mm. So, uh, yeah, um, and so the conversation then shifted to black women and the trauma that they face, well, mm. here we go, the trauma that they face from white fear. So, yeah, I was wondering mm. what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so I... Um... <coughs> You know, I mean, so the statistics are there. So, like, most um, people in prison are men. Most people shot Mm -hmm. by police are men. Um, Most people, you know, deployed in combat are men, etc. And so there's definitely um, a lot of anxiety then that 
is directed toward men of color, so police being mobilized to shoot them, to arrest them, to process them in the court system, um, or deploy them overseas, right? Um, so, but I think it would be a mistake to think then um, that men, because a lot of fear is directed at them um, and manifests itself in like the prison complex, then that men have it men of color have it worse than women of color um which i see a lot of people draw that conclusion because men of color outnumber women of color in prisons etc etc um and the reason i say it's a mistake to come to that conclusion is we have to understand why the men are being targeted in their specific way and then also see how women are targeted in their own specific way so men are targeted so violently that way you know at the barrel of a gun or through the court process because they are seen as um beings capable of violence right women aren't seen that way so they're seen passively so including women of color so they're not seen as you know capable of committing violence so they're more controllable than so who needs to have the violence inflicted on them then becomes the men so but and i'll give some examples but I do feel ultimately women get the shorter end of the stick. <laughs> so when we talk about white mm -hmm. fear, um, and I say that despite, you know, them not appearing as much in um, police murder charges, not appearing as much in um, prison sentences, because um, nonetheless, women are the ones who are then left behind. So the men are in prison or the men are at war or the men have been shot and so and the women are the one left behind to take care of everything to raise the children and to do um the labor work, yeah. yeah that you know our capitalist system forces them to do um in order to pay taxes which are then funneled into the military excursions etc etc um so um and I, some examples i wanted to bring up was um so oftentimes uh so the question you asked is a larger question that people ask sometimes about war and the nature of war and how men are the ones who suffer the most in war. Mm. So um, there have been really interesting counter arguments to that that show that in all of the biggest genocides of the 20th century, it was actually women who, you know, suffered on a scale much worse. And it was because in a lot of genocides that were committed, men were told specifically to isolate the minority women and to rape them with should I have given a trigger word I'm sorry I'm about to go into um details about rape but so and the reason for that was um the majority men um would then you know impregnate the minority women and so prevent her from continuing her race prevent her from having children with her own husband or children with her own race so um, so the idea was you wouldn't just eliminate the men, so eliminate everyone capable of impregnating someone, but you would also then prevent the women from carrying to term any pregnancies from their own race. Mm. So, yeah, so if you look through um, the Rwanda genocide or the genocide in Bosnia or the genocide that happened um, when Pakistan and India split, so there were specific orders to commit as many rapes as possible um, with... And, on top of that, there was also like a humiliation tactic. So because in a lot of these cultures, women who had been raped were um, ostracized or kicked out. So they knew like this was a 
very powerful tactic to break down communities and to break down um, family ties and of course bloodlines. Um, so anyway, so bringing it back to the U.S., so um, there is of course a really violent history against Black women regarding their reproductive capacity. So uh, all almost all of like American gynecology was only possible because of torture that was done on black women's reproductive parts so Mm. um you know so a lot of us when we see our gynecologists and they know where everything is and what everything does a lot of that research was only possible because of torture that black women went through um and of course you know so I'm saying it like it had to be that way. It didn't have to be that way, of course. So there was a lot of knowledge that women and midwives had, but that was destroyed, of course, when men took over medicine. Um, And of course, their tactic for discovering medicine was to be um, as violating and torturous as possible. But um, back to your question. So are men the biggest target of white fear? Um, So I think, you know, in a sense, yes, but... um, but, I think it's how you define violence, because you said, like, yeah. fear manifests in violence, and I think the reason we don't explore the question of women women of color and fear is because we'd have to redefine what we think as violence, because it's not just always the barrel of the gun or prison. Although, I feel like I've read in Angela Davis's book mm. some statistics about women, and she she has, like, a full chapter... Um, denying the idea that um, about like women in prisons like Mm -hmm. I don't think she goes statistically Mm -hmm. against it like men are there are more men in prison than women but um, like the crimes that are that women are in for Mm -hmm. in prison differ greatly from men oh yeah Um, yeah. so even like the prosecution against women so like you have women in prison because of a lot from self-defense oh yeah Um, so Mm -hmm. and particularly those uh, women of color so Mm -hmm. yeah so I think it's a really a question like I think people of color in general are victims of fear but then I don't know, maybe the question isn't fair to say who is worse and who is better. Uh, Yeah, it's probably a really unfair question because it's really ignoring what oppression does to communities and it really ignores what violence is. Um, Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's always tricky looking at prison and using prison statistics. because as you said so most women who are in prison are imprisoned um for self-defense so it's really interesting actually to compare like male violence patterns with female violence patterns because um you know there we don't have any major female serial killers and i think that's really interesting and if you do you know if you get curious and you just wikipedia major female serial killers (laughs) like you did one (laughs) time you'll find that almost all of them just killed husbands and in-laws because they were at the point where they felt like they were gonna die you know like oh like there are stories of women who are being beaten by their husband and you know the in-laws would help and so okay technically she becomes a serial killer because she killed not only the husband but the mother and father-in-law killed three people you know but it's not comparable to right ted bundy right (laughs) so anyway um so there's no so what i'm trying to say is like Mm. we when we look at these prison statistics um 
you know, and we try to argue that like women have it easier because they don't get imprisoned as often. So like that's um, a really big misconception about like criminal patterns. And so, and also who is running the court system to begin with? So mm-hmm. I would understand that argument more if like we had female judges and female lawyers and female um, lawmakers, but we don't. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so when people try to argue that like women have it easy, um, cause women don't go to prison as often. Um, or they try to argue it's even like sexism. I'm like, it, it would be sexism if women controlled everything and, but they don't. So not seeing your point, my man. Mm. Uh, I think it's also important, uh, even though the discussion really has been around white fear to also say that as women of color, we have the you know intersecting identity as being women mm-hmm. even though really hates it when people say intersecting identity uh, but <laughs> I, it just gets misused so much i feel really bad for um kimberly crenshaw because her original piece is really fantastic but like it's just been so misused like yeah so that's another time <laughs> <I find laughs> her flight instinct kicks in when i hear it but yeah so uh women of color are are you know surprisingly women uh so they also have that identity of also ha- being you know having a community that also i don't know how to delicately say this but being also afraid of men yeah. in, in and out of their community oh, as yeah. well mm-hmm. so it's not just so you could also look at it at that dimension not just as a racial issue but also mm-hmm. as uh, a gender issue or oh, a yeah. sexist issue mm-hmm. so last question uh how do we evolve or how do they evolve <laughs> out of <laughs> out of fear and how do we heal yeah. So I unfortunately don't have a really happy answer to this. Um, and I have to admit, I'm a bit of a separatist. So what that means um, for, you know, a woman, um, an Egyptian woman, that, that means essentially not carving so much of your life out for um, men or carving so much of your life out for white people. So and what that means is not mm. having really deep, like, you know, emotional ties <laughs> with them or having really deep like um living situations with them and so and I know that sounds really harsh but I think a lot of people of color actually just live like that naturally you know so like they you know go to school with other people of color or go to work with other people of color. so it's just um not as harsh that. as I'm making it sound but yeah exactly um Anyway, and the reason um, separatism at this point in my life, at least, makes the most sense to me um, is the, you know, more kumbaya route of um, unity and holding hands. I just, you know, I haven't seen much fruit from that tree yet, so I want to try out the separatism for a bit. But um, and a larger, more ideological reason why I'm saying that is because um, when you don't carve out so much of your life for white people or for men, what happens to it? It then gets redirected to, you know, other people in your community. So other women. So and in my case, other Egyptian women. And mm. you become really aware, too, when you make this decision, how much of your life you had wasted, <laughs> essentially, you know, on um, white people, on men. And so and when you s- deliberately and consciously make the decision to stop doing that and to redirect all of that energy energy um to women of color to women in your community you like you really see you know a huge difference and so and I think too it leads to um 
a lot of healing within ourselves as well. So like、mm. when a lot of your energy then is being redirected.、Um, To you know, the women in your life,、um, in my case, the Egyptian women in my life,、um, I feel way more connected with them. I understand them way better because I'm making more of an effort to understand them.、Uh, we spend more time together. Instead、so. of like being in that type of savior complex that I think、yeah. we tend to adopt as people of color when we spend so much time around、uh, white people、mm-hmm. and or we invest so much time around white ideology in that. We're like, you know what,、uh, people of color need to change, or people of color、yeah. need to develop, or our communities、mm-hmm. and our culture need to adopt. These are like、mm-hmm. a lot of phrases that we hear in、uh, immigrant communities.、Um, the idea that, oh, it's your fault that you're not integrating, when it's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. wow. <laughs>、uh, and like all these notions of,、um, or like words like assimilation, integration, adaptation that are used <laughs> with.、Yeah. People of color all the time, but not with white people.、Mm. Unless they're eating a taco, of course, you know. Yeah. You gotta call that, you know, some type of <laughs> culture. Well, no, then it's called diversity, you know. <laughs> it's not seen as,、um, you know, well, because it's not an effort, but it's also not. Well, anyways, anyways.、Mm. So, yeah, so I think hoping to stray away because we often say to ourselves that we're not. Participating in that white ideology and we're not being white saviors, I guess, with what is it called? What's Franz Fanonze with like the masks and such?、Uh, black skin, white masks, that we're not, you know,、uh, we're out here trying to save the community. But when you're、mm. adopting the same language, you're also putting、yeah. onto the community that fear because that white savior complex goes hand in hand with that fear.、Yeah. So, and then、mm. you're really shaping the life of your community. Um, mm-hmm. Towards a negative,、yeah. you know, downhill. And we've seen this with a lot of communities now that have been in this country for generations that, because of that ideology being so strong in it, they've really,、uh, like the Greek community,、uh, the Italian community, they've adopted whiteness so far <laughs> that they've really, you know, participated in the supremacy even today.、Mm-hmm. So, Yeah.、Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of just、um, an important note that I wanted to build off your point. But yeah. yeah. Now, something you said made me、um, think of W.E.B. Du Bois' double consciousness、oh. point.、Yeah. So, and double consciousness is when、um, you have two consciousnesses within you. And so one is yourself, as,、um, in his case, a black person, and the other is a white person. Looking at the black person. So within you, you've internalized the white gaze、um, to the point、mm. that you almost become like a white person looking at a black person. So you're always self critiquing yourself, you're always mocking yourself and others in your family and community. And when you spend a lot of time and emotional connection you know, with white people,、um, that's how double consciousness is formed, I think, because you really begin to adopt their gaze and you begin to adopt their views. And you, of course, direct it against yourself first because you are not white. <laughs> so then you direct it against your family, et cetera, as you were saying, Lydia.、Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think a benefit、um, with separatism is that it really decreases the chance of double consciousness forming. So you don't have as much opportunity to develop a white gaze within yourself and to critique yourself with a white gaze.、Um, 
Yeah, and so, and instead of, you know, wasting all of that energy and all of that stress, you feel like way more at peace, <laughs> right? And so, and you're spending that time instead, um, yeah, in our case with other Egyptian women. And this is not to say, I don't know, a lot of people may think it's harsh, like I can't work with white people. No one's telling you not to do anything. Um, yeah. We're just telling you, watch out for your mental and emotional health um, yeah. because it's just a ten, like, it's just what is it called a tendency or mm -hmm. just yeah i don't know why i can't speak english today but like it's just <laughs> like um it's something that we personally continually see and there's obviously been um mm -hmm. a lot of people who discuss this on a theoretical level i don't know if there's been experiments uh <laughs> like to test like the mental health of people um after being in like a white neighborhood like living in suburbia or like oh, that'd be interesting. um yeah, yeah. or yeah so it's just something to point out um and just to be aware of and particularly in how you i think the first example that i always see is like how people like look at themselves and how they self-deprecate their culture within themselves because maybe somebody's not as bold to mock their mom you know because you're gonna <laughs> get a ship ship but um yeah, I think it first manifests in yourself and then it becomes kind of this linguistic savior. Like, oh, the reason I'm a problem is that I need to start saving people. Um, mm. So yeah, so just always, you know, watch yourself, watch your friends. And I think uh, it's important that we build each other. No one's asking for anyone to like outcast anybody <laughs> or anything. I don't want anyone to think that we're out here like advocating for you not to speak to people and be like i am not talking to you because you are white but yeah mm. it's something just to keep in mind because i know people misconstrue what i say all the time <laughs> so i just wanted to add that disclaimer uh yeah um thank you for listening to our podcast this has been lydia and irini with in mahabba center look out for every month we put out two podcasts on a topic so any feedback comments that you have about any topics or anything that we spoke about let us know and we'll see you in november